Now, as I, as I mentioned, the first session, uh, culture and kingdom was kind of focused on, you know, we looked everywhere, but kind of focused particularly on how it's going to impact us in the church. But we live in a world um, that is sort of embroiled in issues of uh, race and ethnicity and division and how do we approach that. And so we do need, I think, to uh, talk about these subjects. I will say at the beginning here that we're going to look at a, a little bit of history and we're not going to look at all different groups. I, we're going to look at one case study sample, which is kind of the white-black relation um, just for a short period. Uh, that's not to say that that's the only dynamic, the only two groups, that there's not other ethnicities and groups and nationalities and all of that. But we only have time, I think, to look at one. And this is maybe, in, as far as our country goes, the oldest and deepest division. And so if we can figure this one out, then we start to have the paradigm to figure out uh, a lot of the other uh, divisions as well. And in that sense, I'm looking at uh, race and culture divide as only one sort of divide in itself. This is a case study in itself. Invariably, I'll do workshops and I'll, you know, if we do a Q&A, uh, I'll have a sister raise her hand and go, when are you going to address the gender roles issue? And it's like, well, that's not what this workshop is about. A, a very worthy topic to be discussed. But I think there are uh, implications from this one that can be applied. But there are all kinds of different um, divides. It's not just culturally or racially. There are gender ones. There are age uh, and generation. There's a lot of different ones, okay? Um, so we're going to jump in. And just to reorient us real quickly, remember the, the picture of God's people is people from every tribe, language, people, group, and nation. And yet, sadly, we see churches that are homogenous, not a reflection of the gathering of the nations. So there's kind of these categories of differences that God gave us, but in each one of those, we find a way to make them a division. We, you know, we separate tribalism. In fact, we do this workshop in Africa a lot. And sorry, I keep saying we because I'm used to my wife being here. So just fill that in. Um, but when we do it in Africa, like here we do race and culture. There we just change the word to tribalism and culture. And it's the same exact workshop. Because ultimately, what we're going to look at here is a sin issue. It's not an issue of one group. It's not an issue of demonizing one group or the other. Humans find ways to divide, okay? So we, we find all kinds of ways to divide, and it comes down to difference or division. God made us with differences, which is amazing. He's a diverse God. He wants us to have differences. But as human beings in our sinful fallenness, we turn those differences into division. And we tribalize over them, and we war over these things, uh, whether symbolically or, uh, you know, sort of nice war, little microaggression wars, or actual wars. We go to war over these things. Now, I don't know if you've uh, ever been to Ghana or familiar with the Akan language, but there's a word uh, in the Akan language, or a term, and it is Sankofa. And Sankofa means literally to go back and get. And it's often depicted by a bird retrieving a seed from its back. And the idea is, 
is that in order to truly move forward, you have to understand from where you came. You have to look back to be able to understand the present and the forward. So we're going to take a few minutes to look at, again, just a slice of not every single group and every single dynamic or the sin of every group. All groups have committed sin. But how did our world get in the condition that it's in? How did, how did we get to that spot? We have different people groups, but we've turned those into ethnic and racial divisions, and they're deep. Now, in the Bible, it says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. That's the biblical teaching. It's pretty simple. There you go. There's one race, the human race. End of story, we can all go home, right? Or maybe not. Because humanity thought we had a better idea. And so, and we'll look at that. Uh, well, let's go ahead and look at it now. Let's see where it's, again, just a snapshot. We could give a much fuller history and definition of this. In the 4th century BC, now humans have always found ways to divide. But this is, we're tracing one thread. In the 4th century BC, Aristotle develops the climate theory. Has nothing to do with climate change of today. Climate theory is this. People in very cold climates are inferior. People in very warm climates are inferior. The best type of human beings in human cultures are those who live in moderate climates. Like, oh, I don't know, Greece. <laughs> Where Aristotle happened to live. Now, that theory was taken and changed and modified throughout history. In fact, the Romans used it in large part to justify their slaveholding of people. They would go north, they would go south and gather people up. Somewhere along the line, it was easy to drop the cold part and just embrace the idea that peoples from warm cultures, uh, warm societies were inferior. Now, part of that my analysis is that if you live in a warm culture, a warm climate, you by nature need less structure in your society than you do if you live in a cold climate. Right? Because it's always warm. What's the weather? Who cares? It's going to be 80 today and warm. You don't need to so much worry about roads and structure and storing and this and that. Where if you live in a cold culture, you've got to have roads, you've got to have road clearage, you've got to have storage, you've got to have all of those things. So by nature, you have to have more of, if you have seasons, you have to be more structured, right? right? right. You know what I'm saying? Like in Minnesota, we always talk about the weather. I get up and I see what's the weather for the next 10 days. When I'm in Nigeria, nobody cares what the weather is. You know what the weather is? It's gonna be 85. That's what it's gonna be. Why talk about it? It's the same. And so, that, that sort of plays into it, right? And so then, so it's easy to look at warm climates and go, well, they're inferior. They're lesser. And that got sort of embraced, okay? Now, and again, we can't go into all this, but in the ancient world, slavery was a normal way of life. Anyone could be a slave if you got in economic trouble, if you lost a war or whatever. Over time, it slipped into, and especially as the new world was developed, for very complex reasons that I can't go into, but basically it wound up being, if you were a slave or enslaved, you had been stolen from Africa. And slavery from other parts, other sources, died out. Mostly economic reasons. 
So now we're in a situation where we're enslaving one type of person from one type of area. We've got to do the second strongest human drive, I think, is justification. We've got to justify mistreating people. And so justifications were developed that those people were inferior. That's why they're enslaved. Okay. And so that's the situation that was set up. So part of this process was the development of the concept of race. Um, Previous to the mass enslavement of Africa, which actually did not start with what's called, as Octavia mentioned, the transatlantic slave period. It did not start there. Actually, Arab slave traders were in Africa deep and heavy in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries. So, but again, at that time, it was going kind of all over the world. So the, that, that middle period, that transatlantic period, is particularly heinous and problematic. It's a new thing in the world. It's a new kind of enslavement. Um, and so, but suddenly you went from this beautiful mass continent with thousands of different tribes and people groups and, and cultures. And you know what? Let's just call it one thing. It's just Africa. And they're all just one kind of people. They're just black. And so the the idea of race developed um, and became entrenched in science. Scientists now say, okay, we may have messed that up. (laughs) Because for hundreds of years, race was a biological fact. People, groups are different. They're different biology, different abilities, different levels based on just fixed categories of biology. Geneticists now say, oh yeah, so about that. Turns out it's not true. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Um, And the whole time the Bible's over there going, remember when we said from one race? Or from one man came all that, right? But here's the thing. So can we just stop there and go, hey, there you go. One race, the human race. End of story. We shouldn't be talking about this. Well, if I'm driving down the road, do y'all have deer in Maine? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I'm just asking. I don't want to assume. <laughs> but you're driving down in the middle of the night, and you see a deer, and you swerve to miss it, and you go off the side of the road, and you go in a ditch, and you go down, and you hit a fence, and you knock that over, and you slam into a tree and wrap your car around it, and then you hop out and realize, oh, I was seeing something. There was no deer there after all. It does not mean that the damage to the fence and the car and the tree are now make-believe. The damage is real, even though there was no tree there. So even though we look now and say race is a social construct of human beings and not an actual biological category, the damage done from the idea is real. And so as Christians, we need to deal with it. Okay? Um. Bacon's Rebellion, 1676. Here comes the history teacher part of me, but this is important, I think. In Bacon's Rebellion, you had, uh, um, in essence, I won't go into all the details of this, which I really want to because it's fascinating, but I won't. What you have is uh, poor whites, uh, indentured servants, they were called, and enslaved Africans, living together and basically seeing themselves as one group. What's the difference? We're all poor, we do the same jobs, there was intermarriages, there was all sorts of things going on. They, they, they kind of saw themselves together. 
And they became a rebellion army against the rich Virginia planters at the time. They, they were overthrowing some of their conditions, and they were led by, this, by Bacon, um, and who was actually a rich guy. But anyways, that's another story. Um, poor people fighting rich guys' wars. That never happened, right? Um, so <laughs> anyways, so the, it almost worked. They almost won. And the rich Virginia planters, this is history of the time, they, they caught on to the lesson. And they said, this is going to be a problem. If poor whites and enslaved blacks continue to identify with one another, we're going to have an issue. And so there was a very intentional um, <coughs> act taken on the part of the rich Virginia planters. And this was sort of built into the DNA of our country. And they passed what's called the slave codes. And what they did is they, they entrenched into law a difference between, between being white and black. You now have more, uh, you, had, you had greater uh, advantages and were recognized under the law simply because of the color of your skin. And so, and, and their intent was, and it worked, they wanted people to say, well, you know what, I might be poor, I might be barely making it, but at least I'm not black. There's somebody lower than me. And they would convince them, you know what? In fact, we'll give you the right to own some land if you want. You can own guns. And you should help us patrol to keep those slaves in place. Because if they get out and get their freedom and start working, they're going to take your jobs and what little you have. And so they turned, they turned the, the folks on each other and turned their attention off of the poor people or the rich people that were really abusing them. Does that make sense? Okay. So, and quickly, other colonies started to follow and copy those laws, and it sort of just got entrenched into the culture. So, as I said, the idea of race is kind of made up, and we realize that it's, you know, it's a social construct. It was made up to justify behavior. So, if, you, if you're making up a category, you've got to define it, right? So, what is white? That became a question after the Civil War, especially that became important. Who's white? What is white? And in fact, white has been a fluid category over time. It's actually always been a system of power more than skin color. Um, and in fact, there's different time periods in the United States where um, uh, Eastern Europeans were not white. Um, Italians were not always considered white. There was a time period where the Irish weren't considered white. If the Irish aren't white, what's the point of even having that, that I mean, right? And so, seriously though, there were 52 separate cases before the Supreme Court determining who was white. Here's a couple of my favorites. In 1922, Takoa Azawa, uh, a Japanese individual, uh, sued and argued that Japanese should be classified as white persons and considered white based on the current definitions. So the Supreme Court ruled in 1922 that white was defined by the scientific concept of who was considered part of the Caucasian race. If you, were, if you could trace your ancestry through the Caucasoid Mountains, then you were white. The very next year, a gentleman from India um, Bhagat Singh Finn, who was living in the United States, came and said, good news. My ancestors from, come from the Caucasus Mountains. I should be considered white. Well, the Supreme Court came back and said, and I'm not making this up. You can look this up. They, they said, okay, okay. 
what we're going what we're going to have to do here is a common sense approach. And so then it sort of, you know, come on, you're not one. That was their, that was their idea. And so that became sort of entrenched is now white is whatever we say it is and whoever we deem it to be. But you wouldn't be doing that if there's not. Now, this is this is 60 years after the Civil War. Right. Why would these cases be going on if there wasn't a huge advantage to being white? Because in a lot of places, they were the only ones allowed to own property or to even vote in reality and do a lot of these things. And so it was a huge advantage. Now, again, we can't go into all of that. Um, in the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, historians now estimate that about 750,000 people lost their lives. But did you know that more people died from illness and disease than bullets and bombs? More people died in the war from illness and disease. That was a, a more serious threat than war itself. As evil and as sinful and as destructive as things like slavery and colonialism had proven to be, I believe that the mindsets that were set in place to justify that behavior of people has been worse than the actual institutions themselves. Because they're silent, and they're invisible, and they continue on to today. Right. Does that make sense? And, and they, can, they can stay there, and you don't see them, and you can oftentimes not even be aware of them yourself. Yeah. In, this is a picture taken in 1906. This young man, uh, Adabenga, was born in the Congo. He was brought um, by force um, to the United States. Now, did you catch the date? What, what did I say the date was? 1906. When did slavery end? Depends on what metric you're using. 1863, 1865... Okay, 1906. And this picture is taken because Adabenga was in a zoo in the Bronx of New York on display with the monkeys. This was a not uncommon occurrence in the United States and Western Africa in the early 20th century because of the science that said there are racial differ differences between people. And the argument of this time, the scientific argument was are people of color more closely related to apes or to human beings? And so Africans and people from other parts of the world were put into zoos. At the time, the argument was, hey, Benga's is very low in the human scale, and the idea that he should be in school instead of a cage is now far out of date with what we know about reality. And that quote came from the New York Times op-ed page. So the mindsets that were set in place that a group of people is inferior stays in place. That a group of people is uh, more prone to uh, uh, hypersexuality or more prone to criminal behavior or more prone, prone to drug use. Those mindsets stay in place. And isn't it interesting that statistics all across the board show us that 
white people and black people use drugs and sell drugs at, at the exact same percentages, and yet it's like three to four times more black people are in jail for selling drugs than white people. And that's one simple example because these mindsets that were set in place long ago, that we just accept as true. Where was the church in all this? Well, this is, uh, this is Augustine of Hippo. Uh, he's writing late 4th, early 5th century. And he says, Whoever is born anywhere as a human being, however strange you may appear to our senses in bodily form or color or notion or, or motion or utterance or in any factuality, let no true believer have any doubt that such an individual is descended from the one man who was created first. That's called biblical theology. He said, no matter how strange you are or what color you are, you are a child of God. And no better, no worse than we are. Now here's the, excuse me, here's the irony. Augustine of Hippo was an African church leader. Most of the church at that time is in Africa, Asia, you know, not so much places that we would call white people. So probably, and the church is starting to spread into areas like that we would call Europe and that sort of thing. So most likely what Augustine's saying is, no, he's talking about white people. No matter, okay, listen, no matter how strange those white people look, they're still humans. Mm-hmm. They're still God's children. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, I find it human. Like, Amen, right? Because these things do, they, they ebb and flow over time. And a lot of times we read our own biases back in, like we read that, Miriam and Aaron are upset because Moses is marrying a Cushite, an African, and well, clearly they're upset because he's marrying a lower African. No, we're reading our mindsets into that. At that time, the Cushites were the noble warriors. They were the big ones. The Hebrews were the slaves coming out of slavery. Most likely, Aaron and Miriam are upset that, who do you think you are, Moses, marrying a Cushite woman? You think you're better than we are? You think, you know, like you can't marry one of your own people, your sister, somebody like that? And so these, these ideas change. How many of you have heard of the curse of Ham? About a third of you, you really need to know this because this was the accepted theology of Christianity for hundreds of years. It actually started in Jewish circles in around the 6th or 7th century and it spread into Christianity. And in simplest form, it is the idea that um, Noah, uh, and you know, the whole sin of his son and he came in, you know, and all of that and looked upon his nakedness. And I won't go into what that means, but there's more going on there than just he looked at him. Um, and so he then says, Noah actually says, cursed is Canaan because of this. Now, Canaan was Ham's son. And the biblical text makes it clear that what it's talking about is a sexual sin that will be carried on into the Canaanites and those people. But the, the story that was told as well, if you look, the descendants of Ham all go into Egypt and down towards Africa. And so, and it says they will be enslaved so therefore, the curse is having dark skin, and they will always be enslaved because that's what Noah said. Now, that ignores even the fact that God never said this. This was Noah. But it had nothing to do with skin color or with where people were at. But it became accepted. And this was the norm, and it was in textbooks um, as, free, as recently as the 1970s and 80s. Like theology textbooks. 
Okay? When I was raised up, I, I knew this. I was taught this. This was like, this was just standard. And people would say, it's not racist, that's just biblical. Cotton Mather, one of the most influential people in American history, taught, because of the curse of Ham idea, that it was pride that induced black people to want their freedom because God had divined them to be enslaved. Um, we'll skip over that one. Typical 18th century baptismal vow. You're getting baptized, but you recognize that this is only for the good of your soul. Don't get any ideas that you're free or equal because God has divined you to be of a lesser status. This is uh, Dabney is one of the most uh, important and influential post-Civil War theologians in the South. He said, okay, well, sure, we believe that God made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell under the whole heavens. I mean, we believe that because the Bible says it. But we know that the African has become, according to a well-known law of natural history by the manifold influence of ages, a different fixed species of the race separated from the white man by traits bodily, mental, and moral. And he goes on and says the worst thing you could do then is mix races together. Then we have white Jesus. Let's talk about white Jesus. Now, I get it. At this point, some people might think, does it matter what color Jesus was? It doesn't until it does. And for hundreds of years, white Jesus was used as a weapon. The, the idea came around in the Byzantine era, 7th-ish century, but especially by the Middle Ages, 12, 13, 14, 15, 1600s, Pictures of white Jesus were, were printed in every Bible and it was spread around the world and colonialism was going on and dominance and then Bibles were handed out. And, and the story was, why are we superior and you're being enslaved or you're being dominated? Well, because we're Christian and Jesus was white. Our Savior was white. So therefore, the white people are superior and Jesus was used as a weapon. So when Jesus is used as a weapon, we can't just be ignorant of that. We can't just say, well, it doesn't matter because it does. And there's a reality that I face constantly as a teacher, which is there are inroads being made here in the United States and Africa and other places with the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. And whether it's, whether it's black Hebrew Israelite movement, whether it's ancestral uh, forms of worship, people are being in, induced away from Christianity, being told, look, it's a white man's religion. That's simply not true. Yeah. That's why in my Crossing Line book, I have a whole chapter uh, dealing with the idea of skin color and race and ethnicity in the Bible and how actually whites were the very last of the table. Because we need to counter that idea that it's just a white person's religion and there's no place for other people in it. So because white Jesus was used as a weapon, we have to be able to explain that to people and say that was sin, that was wrong. That's not what Jesus is about. In fact, just on a realistic level, forensic anthropologists have looked and said, if you want to know what a guy in the first century Galilee region looked like, there it is. And it's hard to go around and spread white superiority when that's your vision of Jesus. But you know what? It's so ingrained that even though I've known this for a decade and a half, if I'm not 
intentional about it in my mind, if I'm just picturing a biblical scene, you know what pops into my head? Fabio Jesus. (laughs) The hot blonde with the strangely blue eyes in the Middle East, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, can you worship that guy? That sort of changes things, doesn't it? Now, um, I talk about this in the book, and I'm not going to go into this analogy of the Monopoly game, but I'll simply say this. When, when you have inequity built into a system or a game, and then you take out those inequitable rules, the results of that inequity are still there in the society. So therefore, to take the position, I'm going to, we should just ignore all this and move on, that's fair, is entrenching the inequity. So in other words, if we said, no one could come in here if you're left-handed. You're not allowed to get a seat. We kept all the left-handers out there. And then we let all the right-handers come in and take up the front rows. And then we decided a half hour later, you know what, maybe we should let the left-handers in. Go ahead and come on in. Are they even going to be able to find a seat? If it's, you know, if it's filled up, and they go, well, everybody's got the same rules. I don't know why you're all standing in the back. I mean, anybody can sit anywhere. It's been that way for an hour now. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. Not talking about victim status. We're not talking about that. It's a lot of people, oh, you're, seeing, you, you're playing in that victim mentality. No. No, there is a point where people have to say, you know, even if I've been mistreated, if I've been sinned against, whatever, yes, I have, you know, I've got to try to work towards that and, and, and overcome some of those things. But those of us who have historically been given advantage have to recognize that's where people are coming from. And I, I have to be willing to examine myself and say I have been given things in the history of this country that I'm willing to, as a, as a follower of Jesus, lay down and share with others and try to, you know, address some of those things. Supporting positions that resist tearing down racist structures or effects of the past will smell like bigotry and discrimination to others. And churches that take the position of like, you know what, we're not going to get involved in any of that, well... You're not going to be the gathering of the nations for very long if we, if we won't be realistic about these issues. Less than 5% of evangelical churches are what is described as multiracial. We're unique in that in a lot of ways still in the world, our movement. But that's not guaranteed to stay that way if we don't pay attention to these issues. It was Paul who called us to make the two groups one. That's the gospel, destroying the barrier of hostility. Now, just to sum up here, race is primarily a category of power. It's a, it's a made-up category. But the effects of that mindset have continued even well past uh, the Civil War. And you see it in things, and, and I can only mention these. I, I can't take time to explain them all. But black codes, lynching, redlining, annexation, colonization, the war on drugs, mass incarceration, it all stems from those mindsets that were put in place. Okay? This was not an equal analysis of the sin of each ethnic and racial group. We're all guilty of sin. 
But we want to understand why we're in the situation we're in and how we can deal with it as a godly people so that we can be better equipped to address the world with the kingdom of God. Here's the conclusion I reach. I can't tell you how to think or the conclusion to come to, but Romans 12, 15 says, mourn with those who mourn. And I have taken on the attitude, I can't fix your pain. I can't take it away. I didn't cause it, but I can see it. And I can recognize that I benefit from it. And I will work the rest of my life to fight so that others won't experience the pain that you feel. Now, a couple of quick things here. We did a great job of going over some of these, so I'm, I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time on this. But I, I do want to simply say this. A lot of Christians mean well, and they'll go, well, you know what, I'm just colorblind. I don't see color. That's problematic, right? Um, and and I'll, I'll explain why in a second here. Now, let, let me grab a, let me, you're a big guy. Let's say you're a manly guy, right? Let's say I came up to you and I said, you know what? When I look at you, I don't even see gender. I don't even see you as a man. I mean, you're basically genderless to me. That's, you know, I just don't see gender. You're no different than a woman to me. Good choice. Every time I do that, even though the guy knows I'm making a, a point, they're kind of like, yeah, no, I'm not crazy about that. You feel a certain sort of way, right? Because I've, I've denied an important part of your identity, right? So when we say things like I'm colorblind, you're saying like, well, is there something wrong with the way God made me, with my identity? Is it somehow lesser, right? And without even realizing it, I'm going to talk to white folks for a minute, and sometimes, maybe you don't do this, but sometimes we do. We do sort of have ingrained and almost like mentioning race is like, like it's lesser or it's different. So we'll be talking to someone, I'll be like, yes, yeah, so I was talking to this guy that he's black. And we lower our voice when we say, Right? You know, because it's like, well, is it Wanda? You know, is it? And so, no, God made us that way with these differences. Now, racism, my definition, and I, I think you had this in, in the parentheses, it was like institutional power. This is why this is important. Racism has to do with that system of mindset and power that's been in place from the very beginning. It is not. I think by definition, just I'm going to say bad things about people, or if I see people of a different color, I'm going to go, oh, get away from me, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Pay no attention to that. <laughs> but you know what? You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that, and, and so the problem with that is, is, is as problematic as my hands are right now. The problem with that is, is when we define racism in that way, that it's only like the evil white supremacists who hate people of color and don't want to be around them or use the N-word or, you know, take discriminatory acts, then I can absolve myself of any responsibility. I'm not racist. Therefore, it's not my problem. Not my issue. But if I understand that it is a system of the sinful world in which we live, then I realize it kind of is my problem. And I do need to pay attention to it as a citizen of the kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Now, really quickly here. 
Um, which one of these circles is bigger than the other? I want you to look really quickly and determine which one is bigger. It's hard to tell. Take a few seconds. One is bigger. All right, now who says the purple one is bigger? And if you think it's blue, you're wrong. That's purple. Okay. Who thinks the green one is bigger? It's about half and half. If you said the purple one was bigger, you're actually wrong because they're the exact same size. <laughs> But what it shows is how easy it is to be manipulated. I just said one sentence. One of them's bigger. And you all believe me. And you were willing to vote on it. How many things do we believe and have been sort of planted in our brain that we don't even think about? Yeah. Yeah. We've just been manipulated to believe them. Yeah. Right? Some community killers in a diverse body. Unexamined prejudice. Everybody has prejudice. Yeah. I think we've got to stop treating that like the sin that leads to death. <laughs> the unforgivable sin. Yeah. Because the problem with that is, then we won't name it. Yeah. We won't confess it. Yeah. Right? We'll be willing to go, I'm prideful. I'm lustful. I'm this. Are you prejudiced? No. Because society will crucify us for that, right? Mm-hmm. But within the body, we've got to be able to say, yeah. I have prejudices. Yeah. Because if we don't examine them, they will get sort of built in. Yeah. And they'll stay. Yeah. And, and I'm not proud of it. I mean, I, I have these things. I've been married to, my, married to my wife for over 20 years. We've been together like 24 years. We're, we're raising boys who experience the world as black males. And I've had to watch, you know, what that's about and understand that there are things I can do in my country that they cannot do simply because of the color of their skin. I understand all that. And still, not too long ago, I was dropping a friend off at an airport. It was about 3.30 in the morning in early flight. I dropped him off in Minneapolis. I had to stop and get gas. I got at a gas station. As I was pumping couple of white guys walked by and I was just like, oh, whatever, I'm pumping. And then behind me, I heard this door open and close. And I looked behind me and two black guys came out. And just for a minute, I went, am I in trouble? And then I stopped and thought, what am I doing? I don't know those guys. Why was I not afraid of these two guys, but I was of those guys, right? Yeah. Because I have prejudices that were built in that, that are sort of there, and I have to deal with it. I'm, I'm not happy about it. I'm not proud about it. I'm not thrilled every time I speak to a group of people and I go to say, okay, here's, here's me. I wish I could stand up and say, prejudice free, but we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got to deal with it. Yeah. Symbolic racism rejects discrimination and denies prejudice, but opposes any policies that would enable the disadvantaged to approve their position. That would be unfair. I don't think that's the kingdom position. God is always like, hey, let's help out the marginalized. Let's reach down. Never once in the Bible does it say, you know what we should do is have a really good analysis of why the poor are poor. How did they get there? They just help the poor. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Unacknowledged biases create frustration and are difficult not to be perceived as prejudiced. <sighs> Politics. The good news, Jesus said, the Republican Party has arrived. No. <laughs> Literal philosophy is here. He didn't say that. He said the kingdom of God. Tertullian, a North African church leader in 195, says, In us all ardor in the pursuit of glory and honor is dead, so we have no pressing inducement to take part in your politics, nor is there anything more entirely foreign to us than affairs of state. Now, Paul says here, um, he's talking about a different context, but I think the principle is helpful. Um, they were having cultural issues over could you eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. And Paul says, you know what I've realized? I'm free to eat meat if I want, but if it's going to hurt you or cause you to struggle and be in this community, then I'll never eat meat again. It's just not that important to me. What's more important, political freedoms or the unity of a kingdom Envision a kingdom vision for the world. Now, here's this is my own analysis, and um, it, it's only, it only goes so deep, and it needs to be examined a little deeper. But I think it'll help us at least start to think about it. When I was a kid in the '70s and '80s, um, and I, I recognize that most of you were not even alive in the '70s. A few of us were there. Um, the '70s were great. <laughs> 80s were better. 80s. Early 90s is the height of Western civilization. <laughs> uh, but, but, EPMD, it doesn't get any higher. Anyways, does anybody even know what EPMD is? Somebody, please, just one person in here. One, two, all right, we got it. Okay. okay. Um, so, but in the 70s and 80s, uh, the, the Republican Party really came out with this new platform that was, you know, there was Roe versus Wade. So they came out and said, we're, we're against abortion. And they started speaking out on these, you know, political, moral, social issues. Abortion is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Uh, you know, the breakdown of the family and marriage and all those things. And tons of evangelical Christians around the country went, oh, finally, someone is calling sin, sin, speaking our language. These are our people. We're over here. Boom. And they didn't stop to think that, yes, well, those things may have been sin and there were problems, that there were lots of other things that that party stood for that were not in line with God's kingdom. And that the solutions they were offering were almost never in line with God's kingdom. Yeah. But they stayed there and became identified almost synonymous with that political party. Right. Now you fast forward ahead to today and you have the other side going, no, you know what the real problem is? It's things like injustice and racial injustice and gender injustice and some of these things. And you have people going, oh, Finally, someone's calling out sin, sin, and saying what's really wrong in the world. And yes, 
I'm with this party. Right. And they're not stopping to think that, yeah, but they also stand for a lot of things that are not in line with God's kingdom. And they don't stop and pay attention to the fact that the solutions are almost never in line with God's kingdom. And now they're over here going, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and be over there on that political side. And this group is still over here going, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and be over there. And they're making the same exact mistake. Because they have yoked themselves together with a political philosophy of the world that is not rooted in the kingdom ethic. Right. Amen. Now, when I say gospel or politics, I'm talking about partisanship, trusting in the state. I'm not saying that standing up for the exploited or advocating for the oppressed or opposing cultural imperialism or any of these things are political issues. Those are justice issues that we can still take on and should in the kingdom of God. I'm not saying we become pietistic and just ignore and just, oh, the only thing is baptism. That's all that matters. We have to address these things, but do so in a kingdom way. Yeah. Right? Now, you guys here, the Casco Bay, is it Christian Church or Church of Christ? Church of Christ. Church of Christ. Casco Bay Church of Christ. You are not just that church, though, are you? Right? I'm going to guess you guys, you take up a special missions contribution. You send it to another church. Right? You have speakers coming in from different places. You send people out. People move in. They move out. It changes how you operate because you're part of a bigger group. Right? Because you're not just a local church. You're part of a global family of churches. So it changes how you think and operate and approach the world. In the same way, when you enter into Christ... You are not just a member of one nation. You're part of the global family of all nations. Why would I support a position that exalts one nation over the others? Why would I want China first or Zimbabwe first or America first when I'm part of a global family of all nations? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's actually thinking in the wrong direction from the kingdom. I'm not part of one nation. I'm part of a global family of all nations. I have brothers and sisters all over the world. I'm not part of just one race, ethnicity, or tribal, though I am, and I'm not devaluing that. But I am part of a global family that consists of all races, ethnicities, and tribes. Just as I'm in my marriage, and I'm a man, that doesn't make me a woman. It doesn't mean I'm not a man. It means I'm going to pay attention to issues of women's justice because I have a wife. She's part of my family. I'm not just, oh, I'm just all about men's rights. I don't care. Right. No, because I'm fit, right? I'm going to care about that. Yeah. So I'm going to care about these other things because it's part of my family. Right, right. I'm not just one culture. We're a global family of all cultures. We are a global kingdom, a unified global kingdom that's multi-ethnic, multinational, multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, and multi-tribal. That's our politics. 1 Corinthians 9, a paraphrase. Paul says, though I'm free and I belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the African-Americans, I became like an African-American. To the Latino, I became like a Latino. To the European-American, I became like those who are viewed as white. To the Asians, I worked towards an Asian perspective. To the liberal, I became like a liberal. To the conservatives, I became like a conservative. Though I'm not free from... though. I am not free from God's kingdom, but, under, but am under Christ's political rule, so as to win those who have a different worldly political perspective. To the racially and politically sensitive, I learned to understand, so that they might be able to hear the gospel. I've become all things to all people. But we get locked in 
to one view and lose sight oftentimes of the kingdom perspective. There's a Zulu term that means uh, simunian. I love, um, I love the Zulu culture. I love the Zulu people. They have sort of, they've adopted me as an official Zulu. It's a, it's a really huge honor. I appreciate it. Um, if, in fact, if you look at my Facebook page, it says Michael and Busto Burns because that was the Zulu name that they gave me. Busto means kingdom. Um, and so there is a term in Zulu that it, it's Simunian. Um, we've embraced this in the um, Two Cities Church in Minneapolis. Uh, it means we are one. And so all of our sort of initiatives, our days, our things are Simunia. We have Simunia Sundays, we have Simunia gatherings, we have all kinds of things. Because we're on the mission together. So let's talk about, we're going to end here with the kingdom perspective. How do we approach these things from a kingdom perspective? Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's our identity as kingdom people. We are a different nation. The early Christians would tell them, they would say, you know, what what nation are you part of? I'm of the the kingdom of God, but I live here. That was their identity. Right? So we're called to different responses, different kingdom ways of approaching the world. What's a kingdom response? Well, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I'm going to teach you a whole new way to live in the world. And here's the thing, and I want you to listen to me. It is going to be the most unfair way to live. If you want fairness in your life, you've picked the wrong religion. Because the very symbol, the center of who we are is the cross. Is the person who least deserved to be mistreated in the history of humanity being treated in the worst way they could possibly gin up at that time. Right? That's unfairness. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, that cross was not just a one-time event, by the way. That's how I want you to live. You're going to pick up your cross and carry it around. That's the way you're going to live from now on. And so if someone comes to you and they try to exercise power or dominance over you and they smack you in the face, the normal human response is, I'm either going to duck and run away or I'm going to punch you back. Weakness or strength. Acquiesce or justice. But Jesus says, let me show you a different way. I want you to stand there. You're not going to run away. You're not going to hit him back. You're not going to play the games of violence. You're going to look them in the eye, and you're going to show them a different way to live because you're going to show them mercy. You're going to show them love. They might hit you again, and you're going to take that pain and sacrifice on yourself as a way to end it, but to show them there's a different way to live. You're going to take the injustice on yourself. That's really dangerous and really radical. And we can get worked up about issues of justice and like people got to pay for what they've done. And then Jesus is over there going, no, that's not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to show them the kingdom. Yeah, but that's not fair. Then they they get away and they never have to feel that's the kingdom. See, that's not going to, just putting it back on them, it's not going to end it. Because then their people are going to come back at you. And then you're going to come back at them. And it's going to continue like it has all through time. And he says, 
if someone wants to mistreat you, rip you off, and sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. Give them your outer coat. It'll mean a cold night for you. It'll mean some suffering. But you have a bigger agenda. You're showing them the kingdom. Not just what fairness might look like in the world. You're showing them the kingdom. And he says, and if anyone wants to racially humiliate you like the Roman soldiers would and say, you're just a Jew, so you have to carry my stuff for a mile, you stand in front of them with dignity. You go that mile, and then you say, and now I'm going to go and do what you can't force me to do. I'm going to humiliate myself to show you there's a different way to live. And in so doing, it might offer me an opportunity as you go, why are you doing carrying this an extra mile? Let me tell you why. Do I think I'm inferior to you? No. But I'm going to show you a different way. And he actually says, you've heard love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you look out in the world and you're like, I hate that group of people. And they justify it. And it's easy for me to look at like white supremacists and be like, oh, I hate those people. Now I know who to love. That's challenging. Yeah. It's easy to denounce people. It's harder to go love them. And he says, you love those who love you, big deal. Anyone can do that. Even the pagans do that. Be perfect as your father, heavenly father is perfect. That word there means complete. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there is no group outside of God's love. It's complete. It's perfect. He brings everyone into it. Therefore, you don't get to classify anybody as not deserving of your love mm. or your grace. I mean, if you're not feeling a little nauseous at this point, I'm not sure you're listening to what Jesus said. Yeah. Do you see how deeply, like, just... That's why people were walking away from Jesus all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This kind of stuff. Right. So, I, I, woke, you know, people ask me, should we be woke? Woke's a great thing. It means you're aware, you're knowledgeable about your community and the world and oppression going on and, and all of that. Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. We should be aware of these things. But on the other side, I would say, don't use that as an excuse to hate people. Right. Or to sort of say, well, those people, they need to be dealt with. They need to be called up. They need to be shamed. Their careers and lives need to be ruined. Right, right. I'm not sure that that's a kingdom approach. Right. We already talked about that. Uh, Nelson Mandela said the road to freedom is via the cross. If you want freedom, it's self-sacrifice. The only means a Christian has of destroying their enemies is loving them until they are our friend. Then we have a kingdom identity. Paul says there's no Jew, right. or no Gentile, or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, Paul could balance this, because this is the same guy who says be all things to all people. This is the same guy who says, I would give up my own life if it would mean my own people, the Jews, could come to Christ. And now he's turning around and saying, but there is no Gentile here. Right. Well, he's talking about our primary identity. He's not saying those things don't matter. They don't have an impact. 
he's not stripping them of who they are. He's saying, here, there's no level of superiority in these things. It, 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 it does not exist. That's not going to be my primary category. If a race war broke out in the world today, would you struggle with where your loyalties would lie? And if you do, you've got more work to do about what your identity in Christ means and what we're doing as God's kingdom. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said our loyalties must transcend our race, our tribe, our class, and our nation. And this means we must develop a world perspective. The only word I would change in that is I would change world to kingdom. Then we have a kingdom perspective. Paul says, were you slave when you're called to Christ? Then in Christ you're free. Were you free when you were called to Christ? Then in Christ you're a slave. What's he saying? If the world tells you that you are privileged or you are superior or you are better or gives you advantages that you didn't ask for, don't argue about those things. They exist, but that's not your identity. We're called to lay down whatever we have for the benefit of others and the sake of the kingdom anyways. So recognize it, deal with it, try to bring others into you know, equality, but use the advantages you have for the benefit of others. Stand up where they can. Don't sit there and fight, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't get this and that. I didn't have it easy. You know, I take you to use the word white privilege. White privilege does not mean that you had it completely easy growing up. It just means that your culture and race weren't one of those things that made life more difficult for you. Right? So use the advantages. And if the world tells you you're inferior or you're less or gives you a lower status, then understand that in Christ's eyes, in reality, you are of inestimable value to him. That's who you are in Christ. And you're... you're um, there's this little book. Any, anybody ever heard the author Max Lucado? Yeah. There's this little book, and I always forget the name of it, but it's about these little wooden dolls, the, the uh, yes. Wemmicks or whatever. You are special. You are special, yes. And they, they go around and they get their self-worth by putting stickers on themselves. And people put stickers on them. When you're cool, they put stickers on you. And if you don't have stickers, then you're no good, you know, no worth. And finally, one day, one of the Wemmicks meets the, the maker of these wooden puppets. And the maker's like, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks of you, it's what matters what I think. And he suddenly realizes, like, who cares about these stickers? And then they all fall off of him. And he can live life free of these human categories. Now, I say that, and that's an internal reality. I also understand the external reality. I have sons who still have to go out and negotiate the world as black men. And deal with that. And so... I'm not going to be blind to that and say, oh, you know, in Christ, you're, you're of inestimable value, and so none of that means anything. I still have to teach them how to have a kingdom response to those very difficult circumstances and, and be in solidarity with them. I'm asked this question a lot. Can we end racism in America? I don't know. Honestly, probably not anytime soon. And even if we did we'd find a new way to divide and tribalize very quickly. We'd find another way. But I think what we can do is address it in the kingdom of God. Mm 
yeah. and stand out and be different. Why would I run around trying to kill myself to do something out in the world when what I really want to do is draw people into the kingdom? I want to make the kingdom different yeah. 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 so that it stands out. For Jesus, the good news was not the end of Roman occupation of Israel. For Paul, it wasn't the end of slavery or violence in the Roman Empire. It was that the kingdom of God was here. And that life would be different in the kingdom of God. And we would call people into the kingdom and show them a different way to live. The kingdom is greater than temporary justices. And finally, we have a kingdom priority. I'll end on this. Jesus said, come follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people that once they left their nets and followed him. Now this doesn't just reduce everything to evangelism and baptism. But it's saying going out and announcing the kingdom and living it out is our priority. And if the responses and answers of the kingdom look just like the political parties and philosophies of the world. Then what is the point of the kingdom of God? If we let ourselves get sucked into one side or the other and it looks just like what the world has to offer, then what's the point? Why are you even here? It's got to be different. We've got to think different and approach the world different. And in that way, we cross the line. And I'm sorry by my clock. I'm not looking at that one. I went a minute and 28 seconds over. So I apologize because I am monochronic. Um, And I try to always remind my wife, please, hon, that the airlines are not polychronic. They're not operating that fashion. Um, Thank you guys so much. I see Glenn did bring in. There are copies of Crossing Line. Um, I don't have anything fancy, but if, if you want a copy, um, cash, credit, check, we can do all that. Just let me know. Um, and if you want one and you truly can't afford it, then just let me know and I'll let you take one. Um, but they're $15. Um, and so, yeah. Um, amen. Um, I got to charge for them because I have to buy them. Not, you know, so. <laughs> Um, so I think we'll just stop there because we're, we're out of time. Amen? Great. And tomorrow we're here at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. That's the universally holy time to me. So 10 a.m. You know, some very churches out there are here at 10.30. Thank you. This would be the time when Glenn would come up and wrap things up, but he's not here, so he asked me to just uh, come up and wrap things up again. The books are back there. They're also going to be available tomorrow if you'd like to do that. I'd like to give uh, Michael Michael another round of applause. There's a lot in there, and I think it's great that we're starting these conversations, and I look forward to having more conversations on the topic with all of you guys. So with that, uh, we'll just dismiss, and see you guys all tomorrow. Is that here? <laughs>